So we are trekking from cover to cover of the Bible over uh, about 14 months or so, and we are getting toward the transition point between the two Testaments. And let me be honest with you, I hate the story for this week, Um, because we're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, which are two of my least favorite books in the Bible. And you'll probably see by the end what I mean. So we left off with the exile. Babylon defeated Judah, sacked the city, burned down the temple, took the elites off to exile as prisoners of war to Babylon, 800 miles away. And remember, we're really only talking about the elites who were taken, aristocrats, royalty, officials, and remember who was left behind, the poor, which was the vast majority of people back then. So the elites were rent from their lives of comfort and wealth, and meanwhile the poor were just trying to go on with their lives, making sure the wheat grows okay this year so they don't starve to death. Life goes on for them. Now even though Babylon has hauled off the king of Judah, there are still people there, the poor, so Babylon decides to put a man named Gedaliah on the throne. They have great names, don't they? Gedaliah. I love it. Now, here's why they chose Gedaliah. So he's a Jew who has these radical ideas. He wants to reform the entire society. And the Babylonians like this because he's not going to be trying to win independence for the Judean elites because he hates the elites. So he's not the same kind of threat as previous kings, right? Rather, he wants to bring about these sweeping reforms to try and make this a utopian state. Now, extra credit point. Where have we seen a reformer trying to make a utopian state before? Anybody remember where we had seen that before? About... Three months ago, maybe? Nada? Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, It's Jeroboam. And so if you remember, uh, he said the king was exploiting people, which was true, and in order to make himself rich, also true. And so he took his tribes and led them to break off from the united monarchy to form the northern kingdom of Israel and tried to make this utopian state to rectify all the problems, right? Gedaliah isn't too different from Jeroboam. He says, the elites are gone. They're not coming back. And you know what the elites did to us? They exploited us. They made us poor while they got super rich. So we're going to do a good old-fashioned redistribution of wealth. We're going to take all that stuff they left behind and spread it out. And, you know, it's going to divide it up evenly between us and we'll make an equal and fair society. Now, as is wont to happen, uh, he gets assassinated and his vision never comes to pass. But he kicks off this sense for the poor people in Judah that they shouldn't be kicked around anymore. Remember that. The poor people have this sense that they shouldn't be kicked around anymore. We'll be coming back to that. So anyway, 
Babylon. They're the big, bad kid on the block, but all of a sudden they are knocked off the roost by Persia, who then takes over their subjects, including Judah, who is now under Persian rule. And along with this shift, a fascinating thing happens. Seventy years, seventy years after the exiles were taken as prisoners of war, King Cyrus of Persia, as we heard this morning, pens a decree that the Jews should return to their homeland. And, bonus, King Cyrus will pay for the temple to be rebuilt. Pretty sweet deal, right? Well, not... Two things. Uh, First of all, not all Judeans went back because they had settled down, right? And some of them actually liked it there. They were in the center of a powerful empire, and there's benefits that come along with that. And they would be returning to a war-torn country where they'd have to rebuild everything from scratch, After all, they've been here for 70 years. They have generations of family who've been living here. They have kids that have never known anywhere but here. It's not worth it for some of them to go back. And here's the second thing. King Cyrus of Persia gives them permission to return to their homeland. However, contrary to how most people portray him, King Cyrus is not a humanitarian. He's not doing this to be a nice guy or because he comes to see that the Israelite God is the real God or anything like that. This is a calculated move by an imperial overlord to solidify the power in his empire. So, he's establishing his rule, albeit in a different way than the Babylonians. So remember the Babylonians? They're the ones that caused the exile, yes? They ruled by fear. Babylon could assume that its subjects would resent it because it's a jerk. And so it assumes that they would resent it, but through brute strength, basically they quell any sort of uprising that happened and make an example out of them and just basically have everybody cower into submission. That's how they go about it, is brute strength. Now with Persia, on the other hand, you have a different kind of power, what's called soft power, which is in some ways even more insidious. You get your subjects to voluntarily further their subjugation. So you give them some concessions, like, say, letting them go back to their beloved homeland and build their temple again. But Persia still keeps control over the colony. Judah is still a Persian colony. They get rich from the taxes and the tribute from Judah. But now people are enthusiastic about being a part of Persia rather than resenting like they did Babylon. Like, Here's a fun fact for your next cocktail party. The only person named in the Hebrew Bible, the only person called the Messiah is King Cyrus. 
because he was such a good person and let the Judeans come back to the homeland and all that good stuff, right? So his plan works really well. Cyrus cements his power over his subjects for his own gain by letting them return to Judah. And they love him for this. They see him as their Messiah, as this anointed, as this really great figure. Except they were not returning to an empty land, were they? Who was there already? The poor. So now the, the former exiles, they get to work immediately. They start rebuilding this temple. They, uh, and remember the old one. We talked about this some last week. The destruction of the temple was basically the destruction of their theology, of their special relationship with God. But rebuilding the temple, that's huge. Our theology is restored because our temple is rebuilt. But... Alas, it can never be that simple, can it? Remember our friends the poor, how Gedaliah, this utopian reformer, was trying to inspire them to insist on their own worth. Well, these returning exiles, they come in and immediately start running the show. We're going to build this here and do this and do this and do this. And the poor folks say, hey guys, can we help? We want to we join in too. To which they replied, Shavaf, we only allow real Judeans here in our community. Ooh, ouch. The, in the elite's minds, they are the only real Judeans. Remember how in their perspective, everybody was taken into the exile? Right? They've transformed these poor folks who weren't taken into the exile with the elite, Judeans, because basically they're too socially insignificant. They've transformed these poor people who were left behind into non-Judeans. They are now foreigners. They've kicked us out of their ethnic group. So the poor folks aren't particularly pleased, believe it or not. So they become a thorn in their side. They start blocking the construction. So after the temple, uh, they start getting to work on building a city wall. And, and the poor folks go and tattle to King Cyrus and say, you know, you, you know they're building a wall, right? That's kind of sketchy. Kind of seems like they're preparing to fight you guys. And so King Cyrus steps in and stops things. And now here is where we hit the worst part of the conflict. One of the returning exiles is a priest named Ezra. He's the guy who eventually started pulling together the Hebrew Bible and, and assembling it. So Ezra's this religious reformer. But his reforms are unlike our friend Gedaliah, who wanted to you know, help raise up the poor and stuff. Here's Ezra's line of thinking. God wants us to be a holy people. Fair enough. The people around us are not holy. So remember, this now includes the poor folks who've been kicked out of the ethnic group, right? Since the people around us are unholy, therefore, 
we need to separate ourselves from them. And here's the problem. This is the reason why I hate these books. Ezra says, those who have married foreigners, which remember, now includes the poor folk, right? Y'all need to cast out your wives and your kids so that we can remain holy. And so they do it. There is a massive purge of women and children cast out for the sake of maintaining religious purity. And this is precisely why this is my least favorite stuff in the Bible. We have Ezra, who in his zeal ended up throwing under the bus some of the most vulnerable in society in order to satiate his religious fervor, his religious purity. To me, that is nauseating. Especially because this is not just about a story that was happened long ago. It happens far too often, even today. People are shunned, or cast out, or disowned, or even physically harmed, because in somebody's mind, they violate a sense of religious purity. This happens all the time, for example, uh, just for one example, with LGBTQ folks, right? LGBTQ youth have a massive rate of homelessness because they are kicked out of their families who see them as an abomination. Transgender folks, especially of color, are guaranteed to suffer from religious violence in this country. And too often that plays out in terms of physical violence as well. Because it violates somehow this sense of purity, of how they think the world should work. And, and this plays out in a ton of different ways throughout our society even today especially when we feel victimized. It's so easy for us to get tunnel vision and to victimize others. And that victimization most often gets played out on the backs of those without much social power, the most vulnerable in society. And so we, and, and we justify these unethical acts with this religious veneer to assuage our consciences, basically. It's rampant. And this, Ezra and the returning exiles, this is the exact type of story that reinscribes this behavior, giving it religious justification. So, that's why I don't like these stories. This week, I challenge you to do some deep introspection. When you experience harm, do you end up displacing that harm onto somebody else? Do you justify it with your theology? Is your theology truly life-giving? This week, may you boldly embrace the painful introspection that, as Rich was talking about last week, leads to genuine spiritual growth. May it be so.